On this episode of Life at the Ballpark, you'll hear the story of a man who went from having to ask his mother to type his news stories to standing on the big stage at the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. So I was the last one. I, I was got off in six minutes and, and 28 seconds. <laughs> and Harmon Killebrew on the elevator at the hotel after it was over came down and said, that was a great speech, great speech. I said, you just liked it because it was short. He said, well, yeah, yeah, but it was still a great speech. Welcome to Life at the Ballpark. Sharing stories from players, scouts, coaches, and broadcasters about their lives in baseball, from the sandlots to the big league ballparks. This episode is coming to you from Roger Dean Chevrolet Stadium in Jupiter, Florida. Spring training home for the St. Louis Cardinals and the Miami Marlins. I'm John Frost, and today my guest is Rick Hummel. Hall of Famer Rick Hummel of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Rick, thank you for being with me. Well, John, thanks for asking. I'm, well, it's good. To, it's good to see you, and uh, it's particularly interesting for you to be here in spring training because you've seen a lot of them. This is forty-two, uh, twenty-two on this side of the state, and then twenty at, at St. Petersburg, which seems like a really long time ago because it was a really long time ago. <laughs> What's, what does spring training mean for you? Not not only as a writer, but as a fan. I think you look for something different every day. A lot of times, you're looking at the younger players to see. Who's ready? Who's not quite as ready? Who might not ever be ready? Uh, and some of the veterans, how they've recovered from off-season surgeries or, or new guys that have been acquired in trades. So there's always something going. I like watching the games a lot. I know some some writers don't, but I do because in the late innings you can see some stuff that you know, guys are trying to make the team and that they're in there desperately thinking every at bat or every pitch is going to be the one that that gets them on or gets them off. Sure. Uh, Sometimes better judgments can be made later in the spring when some veteran players or veteran pitchers, let's say, are still in the game and these younger hitters are now being faced with different challenges than they are. Because sometimes when they're in the game late, they're facing guys they faced in the minors the year before. It's the same deal. They're not getting any, any challenges there. That's right. It's interesting to me, after every World Series, I hear players talk about two specific things. One is they talk about everything that was against them. We were down, we were injured, nobody believed in us, we came back. That's one part. But you'll also hear players and managers talk about, after the World Series, they will talk about spring training. They will talk about, we knew back in spring training. We tried to do this back in spring training. The fundamentals that we did back in spring training. And this is late October or November, and they're referring back to spring training. I'm assuming that every team does fundamentals roughly the same way in all 30 camps, so I don't know. There's still going to be 14 or 15 bad ones every year, too, that did what back in spring training are fundamentals. Now, some guys, it's a matter of how they retain the fundamentals. There's no genius way to do these things. They have smart coaches and managers on these other 29 teams, too. But how do the players retain them? How do they apply them? That's, some guys are better students than others. It seems to me that there are at least three different phases of spring training. One is the early phase, which we're in now where you see lots of kids, the starters only play two or three innings, pitchers are getting in their innings. You're seeing the guys from the rookie camps. Yesterday, we had three number 90s, three number 98s, and three number 97s. And we're going, okay, who are these guys? Then there's the middle part of spring where the minor leaguers get sit back and the regulars start playing more. And then there's the last part of spring where there's competition. 
They're, they're guys fighting for jobs. I remember sitting in the press box and when Red Shandings was with us, he would always sit with us in our part of the press box every game. And as you know, man, Red was a man of few words. And I can remember late in the season one year, after many of the cuts had been done, there was a certain shortstop, and I'm not going to mention his name, there was a short, certain shortstop for the Cardinals that was still up with the club. And I said to Red, I said, Red, do you think he's going to make the club? And Red turned to me in his simple Red Shandings way. He said, can't hit. <laughs> and he didn't make the club. I have a similar story to that. I've, uh, I was sitting with Red, I think maybe in the very place we're sitting now. And I was prattling on about a player that I thought was really good. And Red let me go on for a while. And then finally I was done. And he said, without even looking at me, he can't play. <laughs> and that was the end of my discussion. My, my, uh, in, all my encomiums for this other player were over, you know. And he can't play. Okay, that's enough for me. Moving on. If Red said it, yeah. it, it was the way it was. A very wise baseball man. Well, he had the advantage of having been a manager for 12 years. In fact, he managed in many decades. Every time they made a change in like 1980 or 1990, Red took over as the interim manager for a while. So he managed in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, actually. You know, only half a season of those other times. But, uh, and he had the ability to, to observe as a manager or as a coach or as a quasi-scout as he was later in his life when he was just a kind of a front office assistant. This is my 20th year here, and my first spring training was Albert Pujol's first spring training. And if you remember how that started, he was only in camp. I mean, he'd only played a handful of games above A-ball. And he was in camp, stuck him in left field. And I think he was in camp because Bobby Bonilla was hurt, and they just had room, right? Well, he, that's how he made the team. So although Bobby Bonilla's hamstring injury was not quite sure how serious that was. They found a way to get Albert on there. I recall standing on one of the backfields early on. Albert had gone from Class A ball to the AAA in one season, and he finished in the play. He won the playoff game for him at, uh, at Memphis to win a series, won a championship. And Galen Pitts was the manager of the, the team, and I'm standing next to Pitsy watching an early drill in 2001, and I said, boy, you're going to have quite a club with the." With Albert down there this year, he says, I'm not going to have him. <laughs> and he never did. <laughs> yeah. He knew. Yeah. He knew he was, going to go, he was going to go to the big club. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing to look back on his career and think the first time we ever saw him in a Cardinal uniform was right here. That's right. And uh, he played a lot of positions here. Oddly, he, he never played second base till that one All-Star game. They slapped him out there like a second All-Star <laughs> game. They said, go play second base. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Might have been his first All-Star game. It was right, right. away. And right. And uh, he played every position. I think he didn't play center field, I don't think. Uh, and I do not think he ever lined up at shortstop in, in, in a regular game. I think he might have played some shortstop here. Maybe the shortstop in high school in junior college. Oh, is college. that right? Yeah. yeah. Kind of a big shortstop. Yeah, you know? I think I he was say. moved off that at, at a certain point. I would but, say. But he, he did not catch, did not pitch, and did not play center field, I do not think, in, in the, with the Cardinals. Oh. Tell me about your first spring training. Tell me about 42 years ago. What do you remember about, well, first of all, as a writer, was that was that kind of a big thrill to be able to sure. go to your first spring training? Sure. This is in the late 70s, yeah. and uh, they were over in St. Petersburg then. The difference then was that the Al Lang Stadium, where they played the games, had only one field and one very small 
like a half field to practice on, like bunting drills and stuff and, and very limited fielding drills. And the first two weeks took place elsewhere. They had a, a place in northeast St. Petersburg for a while. And then when the Mets came over to St. Lucie, they came over here well ahead of the Cardinals. The Cardinals took their complex, which is on the northwest part of St. Petersburg. And the Mets and, and Cardinals were both in St. Pete for a number of years. And they'd work out there for two weeks because they had a few more fields. They had three or four fields. Then they'd come downtown to play the games, but they wouldn't be able to do their fundamentals every. Sometimes they'd run guys out to the out to the other fields, which is about a half-hour drive out there. And it wasn't quite the same at all. Um, I recall, just to, as an aside here, there's they'd uh, take trips. There was a guy that named Keith Smith who played outfield for them, but he lived like in Bradenton, just south of St. Pete. So anytime Cardinals were headed to Sarasota or Bradenton or Fort Myers, they, the bus would stop at a certain street corner, and Keith Smith would be sitting on a, on a, on a bus bench with his bat and his bag, and he'd hop on and he'd go the rest of the way with him. You don't see that now anymore. It was like the school bus. Yeah. Right? <laughs> All traffic stopped. Yeah. The students boarding the bus. You wondered the first time I saw, what, why are they stopping here? And the guy gets on his bat and goes to the back of the bus, and everybody says, yeah, yeah, doing you doing good to see you. And then I assume on the bus back, they also dropped him off at the, at the same street corner. That's amazing. That would never happen today, no, right? No, no. Right. So that was your first spring training 42 years ago. Yeah. Now let's talk about spring training now. What, what's your perspective on the Cardinals? I mean, obviously Andrew Biller, obviously Paul Goldschmidt, or key acquisitions. What, what questions do you have? What do you, what do you think this team needs to answer in spring training for them to be competitive? I think at some point they need to know what Carlos Martinez is going to be and when is he going to be that. He's not going to be starting the season in rotation because of his weak shoulder. He's got a shot for it. He's going to be out another 10 days or so before he can throw again. So he won't be with them at the start of the season as a, as a rotation guy. There may be a chance he could be in the bullpen, as he was last year when he was quite good at that. He had five saves in, in the last month of the year. And I thought that might be the way to go for him. And he only did that last year because he wasn't strong enough to start. At least he didn't think so. So now, what happens at the end of this spring? Does he go on the disabled list? More likely than not, yes. Could he be in the bullpen? Possibly, but then how often could he pitch? If you you only use him twice a week, what good is that? He says he's going to start. At some point, we're going to have to see that, if he can do that. Then that kind of dictates what happens to some of these other guys, like Hudson, who started... uh, a game yesterday, and Gomber, and Gant, and Ponce de Leon, and even in Reyes. Reyes might be ready to pitch next week in some games. Mm-hmm. And then maybe at the start of the year, is he going to be in the rotation? Probably not. Is he going to be in the bullpen? <clears throat> well, he could be, but is he better off starting a couple times in Memphis? I don't know about that. <clears throat> but Martinez, it all spins off him as to what happens to four or five other guys, mm-hmm. including himself. He wrote to us. We'll be back to life at the ballpark right after this. Business owner, what do your callers hear when you place them on hold? Silence or a staticky radio that could advertise your competition? When business is on the line, turn hold time into soul time. Get a custom message on hold now at messageonholdnow.com. Messageonholdnow.com. 
Now let's let's switch gears. First of all, I'm talking to Rick Hummel, uh, St. Louis Post Dispatch Hall of Fame writer, Rick Hummel. Tell me about Cooperstown in the summer of 2007. Would be easy to say it's it's something you'll never forget. Well, of course you can't forget that. Um, well, first of all, tell me about the phone call. How did you find out? Well, it was the, at the winter meetings the previous year, 2006, and they were at the one of those Disney hotels over there in uh, Lake Buena Vista. And I knew I was one of the three candidates because they had that announcement at the All-Star game that year. So Jack O'Connell, the Secretary Treasurer of the association who makes that particular call, asked me where I was staying, which hotel, because people were scattered at several different hotels there. I told him where. And then Tracy Ringlesby, who you're familiar with, <clears throat> from Denver, who had gone in the previous season, <clears throat> said they usually call you around 8.30. So the next day, <laughs> when my phone rang at 8.30, I, I picked it up. I was, I was not surprised, because that's when they, they said, Tracy said they said they'd be calling. And then it was Jack calling me, so then I felt euphoric. And, and Bruce Souter... My longtime friend who had gone in the Hall of Fame, the big-time Hall of Fame, yeah. right, right before that, <laughs> said, you call me right away when you find out. So after I called my son, I called him next. You know, it was 8, 842 or whatever, and he was happy to hear that. But that, when the phone rang at 830, I thought, well, this must be it. You know, it wasn't like anybody else knew where I was, except them, except the Hall of Fame people. Mm-hmm. So then going on to Cooperstown, they treated me all the Hall of Famers treated me as if I was one of their ball-playing brethren for that week. And it was the biggest crowd they have ever had, so far anyway, at 75,000. Not many because of me, uh, maybe seven. Uh, but uh, the Cal Ripken-Tony Gwynn combination sold the place out. Danny Matthews with Kansas City was the broadcaster honored. So those guys, I got to know Tony very well. Like, I'd known him anyway because he played with Padres so many years in the National League. Cal, I didn't really know at all. but got to know him a little bit. And they prepared quite differently. Cal had like a whole team of people and seemed very organized in his speech and so forth, or what, what, how he prepared for his speech. Like he did for yeah, when yeah. he played. And, right? Tony, I, and, and Tony Gwynn was in the lunchroom one day in the restaurant with the some pieces of paper, and he was just kind of scribbling stuff. And I said, what are you doing? He says, I'm making bullet points <clears throat> for my speech. I said, okay, uh, but are you, are you going to have something a little more? Because Cal had, you know, sheets of paper and everything. It was probably color-coded. And Tony says, no, I'm just going to go stream of consciousness. I said, oh, man, that doesn't sound like a good <laughs> idea. I didn't, I didn't tell him that. I said, I, but I, I said, okay. So the next day, we get up there. And um, on the bus ride over, it was starting to rain a little bit. And whenever network had an ESPN or MLB, I forget which, <clears throat> had determined they had only had a certain window <clears throat> to be on. <clears throat> and customarily, the broadcasters and the writers are first, and the players are next. Dale Petrosky, the Hall of Fame president, got on the bus and said, okay, since it's raining, we're going to shift the batting order around a little bit and put... Tony first, Cal second, Danny third, and, and me fourth. And he said, now, if it, if it really rains over there, talking to Denny and me, you may not get to speak at all. 
I thought, well, that's a relief. And, and, then I, and I thought, wait a minute now. I've been preparing this for four months. I want to speak. I, I've got this. So I never did rain, as it turns out. <clears throat> um, Tony spoke first, and it was hot, and he had kind of these same kind of notes with him up there, and he got he lost his place, and he was sweating, and he was trying. He finally got on the right track eventually, but he was sort of disjointed for the and he, and he looked he looked up right away. You never you look up before you get on there, out to the stage. You see where all your family is. That's the last time you look at them then, because you don't want to be doing that when you're talking, because you're going to lose your place. So I was somebody told me that before I got up there. Just just find them. They're right over here. Okay, now you know where they are. You know how many are there. <clears throat> You'll see them later. Just go ahead. Well, Tony was all over the place for a while. Cal was, he had somebody deliver a rose to his wife in the front row, and that, that went fine. And uh, So I was the last one. I, I got off in six minutes and, and 28 seconds. <laughs> and Harmon Killebrew, on the elevator at the hotel after it was over, came down and said, that was a great speech, great speech. I said, you just liked it because it was short. He said, well, yeah, yeah, but it was still a great speech. <laughs> That's great. That's great. One more question before I let you go. Tell me how Rick Hummel fell in love with baseball. I grew up in Quincy, Illinois, kind of near St. Louis, 120 miles away. <clears throat> and I'd listened to all the games on my, all the 50,000 watt stations at night, Detroit, I mean, St. Louis for one, Detroit, sure. Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, Minneapolis, Houston, Chicago. Listen to all the games. Yeah, Chicago sure. wasn't fifty thousand watts. I don't think I had, to, I had to tune in WCFL, the Voice of Labor, for my dad. Mm-hmm. We're three hundred miles away. I was virtually standing on my head like I had my own rabbit ears trying to get the <laughs> thing in there. Uh, so that um, that's how I loved it. I didn't think I'd be writing it so much. Um, I wanted to be a broadcaster at first, and this was the year nineteen sixty two when the Cubs had their rotating series of coaches, and Elvin Tappy was from Quincy, Illinois, who I'd done some spotting for when he and his brother Melvin were broadcasting games. I, I would do some spotting for him, and I knew him a little bit. He was one of the managers, and as I turned out, Melvin was had retired because of a bad arm. They were both, Melvin was a catcher, and, uh, excuse me, Melvin pitched and Elvin caught. But Melvin was my driver's training instructor in Quincy High School. My goodness. And we were talking about what I'm going to do with my life, and I want to be a broadcaster, and he said, you know, 1962, he says, those, those jobs are going to go to ex-players at some point here. And then had no, nobody was an ex-player broadcasting then, except Dizzy Dean. Dizzy and, and Buddy, Yeah, and Dizzy and Buddy Blattner. Yeah. So he said, what you ought to do, because he knew I wasn't a very good player, he said, what you ought to do is try to be a sports writer. So I filed that away. So I went to college a couple years later, to Quincy College, and uh, I worked for the newspaper and did some radio work. But I didn't know how to type, so my mother typed all my stories for me. <laughs> and, I, and after the first year, I thought, well, you know, I don't think mom's going to be able to make all these games here. After me, I have to <laughs> do this on my own. So I took a typing class, went to Mizzou, went in the Army for three years, did sports writing there, went to the Post-Dispatch. And about a couple years into it, I got to cover my first game. And then in 1978, the, the boss asked me, well, do you want to cover baseball full time? I said, I don't know. And then uh, let me try it for the rest of this year. And then I liked it, and, and here, here we are. And I understand that uh, one of the first games you ever covered was a pretty important game, wasn't it? Well, 
it was the first game I ever covered was it played four and a half innings. And uh, the Montreal Expos were playing. And I didn't know how to get in the ballpark then. I got, I got in the, there was a press entrance, but I got in the regular entrance, hopped over the railing. Oh, my God. You know, to interview these people. And the only, the first, first guy I saw on the field for, was Boots Day for the Montreal Expos. Well, I, admit, I knew he played for the Cardinals, so I talked to him. And then there was Gene Mock standing by, who just must have thought, well, who is this Yahoo that just hopped over the fences to cover the game here? The game was four and a half innings. Mike Tyson had a home run, um, only run, and Baylor Moore was pitching for the Expos. And I thought it was Tyson's first home run of his career or something like that. The game was one nothing, four and a half innings at rain. I thought I should inform Baylor Moore of this, that that was... Tyson's first home run. He did not seem amused by that revelation when I told him that. And that was it. I had my first home, that first game of cover was only half a game. But you also saw Tom Seaver's only no-hitter. Well, he, it was in Cincinnati. Yeah. And I covered like, uh, shoot, five or six no-hitters. I covered Fernando's and, uh, and L.A. against the Cardinals. I covered Bud Smith. Only one of Bob Forces two. I was off the other day. And uh, Jose Jimenez had one. And David Palmer had a, had a five-inning perfect game for Montreal, but they threw that one out later on. They figured it didn't go nine innings, so it can't be no-hitter. Right, right. But you, you saw Tom Seaver's legendary Hall well, of Fame career. He's only no-hitter. Yeah, it's funny. He was uh, sitting next to me on the stage at Cooperstown during that ceremony, and after Ripken spoke, about one-third of the audience got up and left. And Seaver says, well, there goes the last train to Baltimore. But then I looked around, I thought, well, it's, yeah, it's only, there's still 50,000 people here, you know? Or I didn't know the numbers at that point, but, right. but uh, right. it was, he was, got me amused, kept me loose enough, and because uh, uh, I, was, I was nervous every minute of, of those four days until I got on stage and looked behind me, and there was Ozzy, Brock, Gibson, Red, I don't think Stan was there then, but uh, those four, Suter, I'm thinking, these are my friends. You know, I'm okay here. And, yeah. uh, and I was. Rick Hummel, Hall of Fame writer for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Thank you for your time, sir. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure being with you. My pleasure being on. I'm John Frost, and this is Live from the Ballpark.